Well, good to be with you this morning uh, in Yakima, um, the land of the sun. I'm excited to be here with you. I've been praying for you this week, uh, praying for myself as we uh, look to this passage that we would hear the words of God himself uh, to us and we'd respond uh, to him. About three weeks ago, uh, I went camping and I walked away from the, uh, the group and it was down by the river and I saw this tree and I just thought, that's a beautiful tree and uh, it needs to be climbed. Uh, it, was, it was rooted in the banks, but part of the tree was overhanging the water and so I decided I'd start climbing this tree and I got about 15 feet high and uh, I looked down and I looked up and I thought, Maybe, maybe 15 feet is high enough, and uh, wisdom told me to come on down. Uh, I listened. Uh, bad news for you, you don't have an exciting story about me falling into the, into the water, but for me, I'm happy that I don't have that story today. But it got me thinking about uh, trees. Any, any tree climbers in here? Maybe? Anybody used to climb trees? Get somebody to boost you up there, or a shoulder, and you know, you're higher than everybody else, and it's just, you're up in the tree, and... Uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's an image that Scripture uses uh, to talk about our spiritual life. And uh, Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, reminds us, uh, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a, a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And I think the tree's a good image to think about when we think about our lives. We want to be rooted in the soil of Christ. We want to grow up in Him. We want to bear good fruit. The, the opposite, uh, Jeremiah gives us a picture as well. Uh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places in the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Quite a contrast between this big, looming tree that's lush and green and the shrub that's in, in the desert. Uh, a couple of years ago, we were driving in Wyoming, a family trip, and all of a sudden, across the road, comes this thing. And I'm going, where, where did this thing come from? And, and somebody needs to you know, put a crosswalk or put a fence up. And it was a, a tumbleweed. Um, and it was, it was a good-sized tumbleweed. Do you guys have tumbleweeds around here? Okay. I don't know much about them. It had been years since I'd seen one. Um, but the wind just blew it across the road. And what, Are they good for anything? Except planting more tumbleweeds? I, I don't know. But I think if you're a farmer, maybe you, you gather them together. You're like, no, there's nothing good. Uh, maybe you burn them. Anybody here burn tumbleweeds? That's what you do with them, right? Um, comes up quick, and it's gone quick compared to a tree that's rooted deep and is lush uh, and green. Uh, tumbleweeds, uh, tumbleweeds have a really weak root system, and so when the wind comes along, it just, it just blows it along. It's not rooted very deeply at all. You may be wondering why I'm talking about uh, tumbleweeds and trees this morning, and here's the point. Uh, Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, and he wants them to be rooted in Jesus Christ. He wants them to be rooted deeply in the gospel um, and not be a tumbleweed, in a sense, that is blown around by the false teaching of the day. Surely Paul um, had friends who'd been deceived, who said, I'm in Jesus, I'm in Christ. And then he heard about them later, how they'd walked away from the faith. 
And here he's hearing about this church, he's hearing about false teachers, and um, he cares for them. He doesn't want them to be blown around with the false teaching, and so he writes to them. Uh, in, the, in the context, the first chapter, he's saying, I haven't ceased praying for you. My heart is anxious uh, for you. He wants their hearts to be encouraged. He wants them to know the, the riches of Christ that are hidden um, and all, all the treasures and the wisdom hidden in Christ. He doesn't want them to be deluded with the plausible arguments of the day. He, he recognizes things sound good to these early, early believers. He says, these are plausible arguments, and I don't want you to be uprooted by them. Well, um, there was a lot of false teaching going on in Paul's day. Um, maybe you've heard the word Gnosticism. It comes from the word gnosis. Anybody know what that means? Knowledge, yeah. And there were people who believed they had this extra sense of knowledge. Um, and, and one of the teachings that was going around was that um, the spirit is good, the spirit, and yet your body, anything that is material or matter, uh, is bad. And so this created a lot of problems. There was a group of people who um, denied the body. They lived this ascetic sort of lifestyle, harsh on the body, uh, fasting, keeping all of the rules, uh, in order that that would lift up your spirit. And then there was a group saying, well, because this, the body doesn't really matter, you can just indulge it and do whatever you want because it doesn't affect your spirit. And so one group was denying the body and the other group was indulging the body. Um, this, this brought a lot of theological errors as well. There were some who would say that um, the doctrine of creation didn't really matter because God, if he's spirit, he couldn't have created the, the world, which is matter. And, and then they would also say, um, if that's the case, we, we need intermediaries to go between God and man. And that's why in this passage you see um, Paul defending this idea of praying to the angels. So weird doctrines showing up in, in Corinth for sure. Um, can you picture Paul? He's in prison. He's in chains. Maybe he's pulling his hair out, going like, I don't want them to become victims of this false teaching. And so he writes to them uh, with a sense of urgency to be rooted in the gospel and in the person of Jesus Christ. So, verses 6 and 7, if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and open them or turn them on if you're on, on your phone, and we'll read together. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. They had received Jesus uh, as Christ, Christ being the Messiah, the one who was foretold about from long ago. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. They had received him as Savior. Uh, Jesus means the one who, who saves. They recognized that Jesus had, had rescued them from their sin. Jesus was the Savior. And they'd also received him as Lord, They'd submitted to him. He, he's above all, and my life is under his authority. And Paul says to them, if you have see, received Christ Jesus the Lord, now walk in him. I think that's a good question. What does it mean uh, to walk in him? And I'll, I'll ask you the question, can you receive Jesus Christ as Savior and not walk in him? 
Can you do that? Sure. Now, there's people who have eternal security who, who are not walking with him, and I would say that is the most, uh, one of the most miserable places to be. Because if you're a believer and you're living in sin, you, you still have a conscience. You're, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you can't enjoy sin the way somebody who's rejected God can. And so, yeah, you can, you can have assurance of salvation and be walking the other direction. And Paul is saying, you've come to know Jesus, a Savior, as Lord. Now, now walk in him. Uh, John 15 gives us a good description of what it means to walk in him. And I notice you have a... Um, some grapes on the side, you have a vine, and it's this picture of um, Christ is, is the branches. No, it's the other way around, right? We are the branches, and he is the vine. And this idea that we are in him, and we're aware of his presence in our lives. As we go to work, as we deal with relationships, um, we're aware that God is in us, and that we are abiding in him. Uh, we're walking in him. Um. In verse 7, Paul gives us a picture of what this walking in Christ looks like. He talks about being rooted and also built up. And so there's this picture of uh, going down, be rooted, and also be built up. I don't know if you've ever walked around a big city, and uh, you come to this block, and there's this big gaping hole in the middle of a city block. I remember the first time I saw that, I'm like, what is going on? Well, they're building a skyscraper, but to go up, they first have to go down. All, all that, that metal and steel has to go deep into the earth to give it a sturdy foundation. And that's the same way with our, our lives as well. Um, it's easy to root our lives in things that are not Christ, our own intelligence. We find our meaning in our work. We find meaning in, I would say, religious performance at times. And that's that's one we have to watch out for, especially those of us who go to church, right? In a sense, it's like taking fruit and stapling it to the tree. In some sense, the root system isn't developed, but you want your canopy to look big and lush, and you're getting fruit, and you're stapling it to the tree. The only thing is that just falls off, and it gets exhausting because you have to go back and staple that fruit on again. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to staple fruit. I want you to actually develop a deep root system in the gospel, um, I learned about trees uh, getting ready for this because of the word rooted. And um, what I learned is that um, when you stake a tree, how many of you have staked a tree before? When you get a stake and you put it there? Yeah. We think it's for the, the main um, trunk of the tree, but it's actually for, for the root. It stabilizes the root. And the reality is if you keep that stake in there too long, the main trunk doesn't develop. And when you take it off, it's all, it's all flimsy. And so the, the point being, um, the stake is there to stabilize the root, and yet if you try and put these barriers around your life to be safe, it, you, you never develop, you never grow. And the fact is there's always going to be false teaching. There always is going to be some kind of new philosophy that's coming. The point is not to be, un, be, be unaware of it. The point is that we would be rootly uh, deeply rooted in, in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about being established uh, in Jesus. And so when we think about a tree, that's the terminology that's used. It's to say When a tree is established, um, they're talking about the root. You, you can leave it alone. It's, it's gaining water. It's growing up. Um, it's absorbing. 
the tree is established and you can take the stakes um, away. Um, the main point here, though, in verse 6, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. And, and the basic question is, how did we receive Jesus? It's by faith in, in the gospel, right? What does it mean to walk in him? Have faith in the gospel. Uh, what we get in with the gospel is what we get on with. Right? The gospel is not just the, the, uh, the entrance, it's the main thing. It's not just the entree, it's the, it's the main course for Christian living and Christian, Christian life. So Paul is not coming up with a new strategy when he hears about the trouble. He's not, he's not writing from afar and saying, I've got I to throw them some new information here. He's actually going back to the old gospel and he's saying, ah, you've got to be rooted deeply in what you first heard which is the gospel. Um, how many of you ever struggle in life? Yeah, if you didn't, don't raise your hand, you're kind of, you're a liar, just like me. I struggle too. Right, we struggle in, in marriage, we struggle with, you know, employment, maybe you've got a boss and co-worker and it's just <sighs> filled with anxiety or, or, or maybe it's a son or a daughter and they don't respect you or, or listen to you or, Maybe you're a student and, like, the grade is not what you deserve or think you deserve or something like that. Um, Here's the important question when that comes up. If we want to grow, the question is, how does the gospel relate to my struggle? What what is the death, uh, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the promised return of Jesus, what does that have to do with my struggle with my kids or my trouble at work? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves if we want to be rooted and shaped by the gospel. And so here's, here's the test for you. When a friend comes to you and says, hey, here's my trouble, pay attention to what you do. Do you give your best advice? And, I, and I'm not saying your best advice is, is bad. It could be really good advice. But do you give your best advice? Do you, do you send them a link to an article online? Or do you ask them the question, how does the gospel relate to your struggle? What, is, what does Jesus and his death and resurrection have to do with your pain? Let me challenge you to ask yourself that question and to ask your friends that question. Will you take it? Give it a go? All right. Yeah. Verse 8 says, uh, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. When you think of being uh, taken captive, what do, you, what do you think about? I, I couldn't help think about a suspense movie and, and Liam Neeson uh, saying the words, you know, if you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you that I don't have money. I have a special set of particular skills that I have acquired over a long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I don't know if, that's not even the right accent, I don't don't know. But you think about this like being taken captive and you're enslaved. And in this situation, here are people who are being enslaved by by themselves. 
they're giving themselves over to the slavery. And Paul is, in essence, giving the Colossian church a warning. Don't be enslaved by what you, by, by what you think is going to give you life. And what he's saying in this passage is, it's, it's empty. Uh, don't be fooled. Don't be deluded by these false teachers and their philosophies. It's, it's empty. Well, let me ask you this. There's all kinds of philosophies um, that we find out in the, in the first century church. But the question for us is, what are the philosophies of, of today that, that lure us in? You know, are, are we mindful of them? Uh, I, I was working on this sermon, and um, I met this guy. I was in the middle of writing, and he's like, hey, hi, how's it going? And what are you doing with your life? And I said, well, we're going to plant a church in Coeur d'Alene. And he looks at me and goes, oh, I'm planting a church too. And somewhere, somewhere on the East Coast. Um, but I was like, oh, wow, what a, what a coincidence. And I started talking to him. And he started sharing about um, his leader that he was following. And this guy had apparently been in prison and had this um, encounter by Melchizedek, who came to his prison cell and invited him to be on mission for God. And so this guy had traveled to India. He'd been a, a Buddhist monk. And uh, he had experienced nirvana. And it had, it had felt wonderful, but it wasn't enough. And so he had taken part of that religion and uh, part of Christianity, and he was on this mission for God. And, and if I'm honest with you, there was a little part of me that thought, man, this sounds exciting because this guy's over here, and then he hears the Spirit speak, and then he's over here. And um, I could see if I wasn't well-grounded, like, wow, you're really spiritual, you're really mature. And he had this kind of long list of stories and at the, at the very end, I mean, I couldn't help but just say, I, I, I just believe in, in Jesus and the simple gospel and really nothing more, nothing less. It felt so good to say that. But do we believe that that is enough? It is enough. That's what Paul is getting to here. Uh, we live in an age of religious pluralism, this idea that any, any pathway leads you to God. And that's what my new friend was holding to. You know, take a little bit of this, take a little bit of that, put it all together, get yourself a spiritual guru, and you're like on track. You're going to do well. And Paul is going, watch out, watch out. I think the biggest deceitful philosophy uh, and even moral law of our day, there's a pregnant pause right here. What do you think it is? Any ideas? It's this idea of tolerance. Do you remember what tolerance used to mean? If you tolerate somebody, what are you doing? Enabling. Enabling? I would say you're, you're putting up with them. You're tolerating them. You're, you're bearing with them. You don't agree, but you're, you're tolerating them. What, are, what does it mean to tolerate today or to have tolerance today? And you are agreeing with them. It's actually very opposite. You, you, you aren't just agreeing, you are celebrating. If I were in a conversation with, with Kevin, the new tolerance is that I have to accept his view and he has to accept mine and we have to celebrate each other and be like, wonderful. In fact, if I say to you, Kevin, I think you're wrong, I have committed the greatest sin which is to judge him. Does that make sense? Absolutely. 
Don't be lured in uh, by this. Um, in fact, if you think about it further, it's the intolerance of tolerance. Because tolerance would mean that you could disagree, and today that's been taken away. You have to celebrate. Um, very different from Christianity, which says, repent of your sins and change and grow. Tolerance would say, celebrate who you are. You don't need to change. You need to stay the same. Very, two, two very different messages. And if you want to be well-liked in our culture today, uh, be careful. Be careful. Because you may need to say something that isn't, isn't wonderful to somebody else. The gospel says we're sinners, and God wants to change us and grow us up. I had a friend um, who came and visited us a few weeks ago, and they were in Indonesia for a few years, and he said being there, they grew in their awareness of of the spirits. Um, He said he took his family to this parade, and uh, thought, oh, this would be a great introduction to Indonesia. And what he found out was that the dancer has, had, had asked the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, the satanic spirits, to enter into them and to dance through them. And he's there with his kids, and he's going, oh man, this is like, these guys are in a trance. And you could feel the thickness in the room of, of evil, and he said, we, we, we got to get out of here. So the security guards in Indonesia are like wicked scared of ghosts. They'll walk around in the dark, and they'll like so scared of ghosts because they've seen them. So there's a deep belief in the spiritual realm. Sometimes here in the West, we, uh, we're like, yeah, we kind of forget about Satan. We kind of forget about demons and his legions. Um, it's not to say that there's a demon under every bush. You know, your car died and you're like, oh, it's Satan. Um, well, maybe it's a dead battery, you know. Um, but let's not be ignorant to reality. And Paul is saying that, um, man, these are from the elemental spirits of the age and not of Christ. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The person of Jesus Christ was being questioned, and so Paul is saying the fullness of who God is The God who created the universe dwells bodily in the person of Jesus. Um, Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, of the glory of God and is the exact imprint in his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Remember the story of the disciples in the boat? Like they're getting afraid because of all the, the, the water and the wind. And then Jesus, he gets up and he, he's like, I forget exactly what he says, but like waves be still, you know, wind stop. He commands nature and, and it's calm. And in the passage, that's, that's when the disciples get terrified. They're like, who is this? Even the winds and the, the waves obey him. And this picture that this is not just Jesus a person, this is God himself in, in the flesh. And Paul says something more here, um, and you have been filled in him. Ever thought about that? 
You're filled in him. When I was a kid, I thought, thought of the language of, you know, Christ, Christ is in me. You know, maybe this picture of this, this little, little plumber guy, and he's in your heart, and he's got his spanner, and he's walking around, and Jesus is in me. But Paul is saying, but, but we are in, in him. That's a different picture. Maybe it's helpful to think about being, being at the ocean, and maybe you're walking on the Oregon coast, and you've got uh, your, your jar, uh, your mason jar, and you're looking out the, at the Pacific Ocean, and you take that out of your bag, and, and you put that down in, in the water, and the wave washes over, and the jar is, is full. In, in the same way, we are full, Christ in us. And yet we cannot contain all of who Christ is in us. And yet if you take that jar and you place that in the ocean, now we are in him, in the, in the vastness of, of who he is. The image is one of marriage, um, Christ and his love for the church. And somehow a husband and wife become one in the same way that Christ and his church become one. We are mysteriously uh, connected together. Verse 11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised in him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Uh, Paul's going to remind them of this explicit gospel. He's just, he's just going to review, like, this is what the gospel uh, is, is about. And uh, in that day, if you were a boy from a Jewish family, you would be circumcised on, on the eighth day. You would have a little bit of uh, flesh taken away from you. You would have a little bit of uh, blood, and, and you'd be good. Um, and I've got permission from my wife to, to, to share this, but SD here had an emergency cesarean years ago, and we weren't expecting it. It was an emergency, and I found myself watching the surgery take place, and I was fine. Great. Um, I went to my son's circumcision, and my hands started getting clammy and uh, started sweating. <laughs> That's a different story. Um, but the picture here is one of circumcision. And we're not talking about the circumcision of Jesus when he was eight. It's actually a picture of Jesus who was circumcised on, on the cross. This idea that he, he endured uh, lashes from a whip that was intended to tenderize his back and, and pull flesh. That's what this scripture is referencing, the circumcision of the flesh of Jesus. And it wasn't a little bit of flesh either. That's his body broken for you and for me. And his blood poured out. And it wasn't a little bit of blood in his circumcision. It was a lot of blood. That's represented by, by the cup. Uh, blood of the new covenant. This is the picture that Paul is referencing. Jesus cries out, uh, it is finished. And then he gives up his spirit, uh, his lifeless body, hangs on the cross until it was taken down and placed in the tomb. A cold, uh, dank tomb. And it, and it, and it laid there. And we know that that's not the rest of the story. On the third day, his chest, right, his chest began to move 
And Paul says it's the power of God that raised him from the dead. And we know that Christ got up out of that tomb, as we sang about. Uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus, do you remember what he said? He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is Jesus foreshadowing his, his own death. And it's a good question for us to consider. Do we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? You know, maybe you've expressed your belief through baptism. Anybody here been baptized? Come on, you can raise your hands. Yeah. If you haven't and you know Jesus, let me encourage you to, to pursue that, to make a public declaration of that faith. We were at the, at the lake a few weeks ago, and my eight-year-old, um, we were walking along the trail, and she goes, Dad, I think I want to be baptized. Just kind of out of the blue. And I said, oh, Emmy, what's, what's that about? What made you think about that? She goes, oh, I don't know. I just like kind of being dipped in the water and then like coming up again, and that was kind of fun. And I said, do you know what baptism means? And she, she wasn't very convincing, and I got a chance to explain to her, you know, when you go under the water, Emmy, it's like you can't breathe. The water is like the grave. And, and you are being like Jesus who went to the grave. And then, and then when you come up, you can take a big breath of air. And it's like Jesus who rose from the grave. And you're identifying, you're, you're being like him when you come up out of the water. She goes, oh, wow. I never thought about, about it that way. So I think we're going to have a, a baptism service this summer with some young kids. It's going to be great. Um, but Paul is talking about that here. He's saying, not only did Christ do these things, but you did these things with him. You identify with him in his death and resurrection. When Jesus came out of that tomb, you came out of that tomb if you're in Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, all of my sins were on him 2,000 years ago. All my past sins, the sins that I'm currently in, my future sins. So we participate with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. We are intricately uh, connected to him. Take a look at uh, verse 14. He cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Let me ask you, have you ever felt the, the weight of debt upon you? Ever felt that? Anybody here have student loans? Man, those just go on and on. Anybody have a mortgage they have to pay? Like, and if you just stopped paying it, like, somebody would come and find you, right, and find your house. That would not be a good, a good story. Um, how about medical bills? You have a surgery or, or something like that, and you've got this debt that is weighing over you. How about, how about credit card debt? Like, you don't have to raise your hand on all these, okay? You, you know in your heart, right? Uh, how about a criminal offense? How about being sued? Or maybe you've sued somebody. All, all these, this, this heaviness that doesn't seem to go away, and we feel this heavy weight and burden on us, and it, and it has legal demands. Uh, 
there's, there's a story of Martin Luther who, who had a dream, and, and it went like this. He was uh, asleep, and he was visited by Satan himself in the dream. It's not never a good dream, right, when you've got Satan visiting you in your dream? But anyway, um, and Satan brings to him his record, um, and on it is, is a list of all Luther's sins, and he holds it up, and he goes, is this, is this yours? Are, are these your sins? And it's written in Luther's handwriting. And Luther's there, he goes, that, that's mine. And he brings out another scroll, and he goes, is, is this you? And Luther's saying, yeah, that's me. And Satan is tormenting him on and on, and then is about to leave, and Luther in his dream says, but hold on, hold on. You need to write across every word of it, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen? Amen. That is good news. Uh, Luther understood what God does with our debt. He says, canceled. There's the debt, and he says, paid in full, and it's stamped in red with the very blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The payment is not ignored. We know that. It it is paid for through the precious blood of Christ. And if you are in Christ this morning, your sins are forgiven. Um, you are no longer in debt. Even in your future sins, they've been, they've been paid for. You are innocent. You're not guilty. Um, you are free. And there's no condemnation coming your direction at all. And I'll tell you, if you're here today and you're not in Christ, you still have a record of debt on you. And I don't say that to burden you in a sense of leaving you kind of in a sorrowful place. I say that because you could leave here today with that canceled. And maybe it's God's grace to you that you're here and you could leave today with that freedom and that knowledge. Uh, Don't take that lightly. Whatever the case, um, whether you're a believer or not, Satan and the elemental spirits, his deceivers, don't want you to receive the good soil of the gospel. They don't want you to walk in freedom. Uh, The enemy wants to hold you down, uh, telling you that there's no hope for you. Uh, He wants to hold up your record of debt and wave it in front of your face and says, this is who you are. You are your sins. Um, You'll never be free. You're doomed. There's no hope for you. You can't change you won't amount to anything. Those are the words of the deceiver. And you know what? You don't have to believe those words anymore if you're in Christ. You, know, you think about Jesus going to the cross and you think about Satan. Um, did Satan think he was going to be victorious? He's contending with God himself. But I can imagine him with his legions of demons going like, We're, we might win this thing. Maybe his own pride blinded him to the reality, going, we're, we're going to take, take this war, and, and we're going we're gonna to win. Paul tells us that Jesus, through his death, uh, disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Christ is victorious. Satan's main destructive weapon is your record of debt that he holds up. 
And in the cross, Jesus took that away. He disarmed him of the power that he has over you. And sometimes we find ourselves believing that lie. And Jesus says, nope, I've canceled that debt. That is not who you are. You are in me, and I am in you. And you need to be rooted in me and grow up in me. This last verse is a picture of a victory parade. So back in wartime in the first century, uh, there would be a battle. And if you lost the battle, that was, n- that was not a good day for you, right? But the, the winning town or city would erect often stadium uh, bleachers on each side of the main street. And in coming through that street would be all the loot and all the spoils of war. And so there would be uh, art, there would be uh, all the weapons of battle, all the, the pottery, everything from that town that they had won over. And then there would be the enemies of war that would be in shackles brought through into your town. And you would, you, you would look at them and they would be put to shame and their king would come in, in chains. And Paul is using this analogy to talk about Jesus and his victory over Satan and his demons. So there is a king and he has all the authority to, to do this. You know, we often think about Jesus uh, meek and mild. And he is meek, his power under control. But there's a time when he's not going to be meek anymore. There's a picture in Revelation Right, of Jesus in his return, and it talks about Jesus coming on a white horse. Like the Westerns stole this idea from Revelation. Okay? Jesus is named faithful and true. He, um, I mean, he's wearing a robe. It's white, but it's, it's dipped in blood. And there's a sword coming out of his mouth, and behind him are the armies of heaven all on white horses wearing white, and they're coming in judgment and in power. And if you're in Christ on that day, it's still going to be a scary sight, but you're going to go, man, I am, I am so thankful that I am in him. He is the ultimate authority. And Paul recognizes this. And I hope we recognize the power of God today um, as well. Sometimes we forget who we, who we are. We forget that we're in Christ, in the mighty warrior, that he took our shame on himself and he canceled that debt. Christians, sometimes we forget who we are, who we were, in a sense. Um, I, I belong to the other side. And so did you. We, we were children of wrath. We were enemies of God. In a sense, we were part of that parade in shackles following Satan. Sinners by nature and by choice. And what God did is he, he, un, he, he unbound those shackles and he set, set us free and he says, I'm inviting you to be part of my family. I'm, I'm not going to loot you. I'm going to share my loot with you. I'm not going to put you to shame. I was shamed. Everything that I have is yours. Come and be a part of this kingdom. That's a good God uh, that we have. This morning, the invitation is to to rest in Jesus and and to grow up in in him. Maybe maybe if you're honest, um, I hope you're an honest person, but sometimes we say, man, I feel more like 
a tree that's been withered. I don't know if my roots have been going very deeply into Christ. Maybe you would say, man, I feel more like a tumbleweed that is just rolling around, blown back and forth by the winds of the day. Paul is speaking to the Colossian church. He's aware of the deceit, and he's saying, be found in Jesus Christ. Be found in who he is. And, and that's the invitation to us today, is to be found in Jesus and to, and to root our lives deeply into the gospel. Maybe God wants to do something new in your life. I don't know. Maybe he wants your attention and he would say, um, grow up in me. Be open to how I might grow you into a, a big, blossoming, sturdy tree that has its roots deep. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're like, I, I've never been rooted in Christ, really. Let me give you that invitation. Um, put your roots in him. Put, put the seed of your life into the soil of Jesus. Find yourself a good oak tree to hang out with. Acknowledge where you are, and God will grow you up in him. Amen? Big trees, not tumbleweeds. Let me pray for you, and we'll, we'll continue in worship.